right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 10 to 13 of Philippians chapter 4. Well-known verses, wonderful verses. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, please hear this public reading of God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your precious word that we get to open up and look at and study from. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things from this passage of Scripture. Father, I pray that as we consider contentment, as we consider learning the secret of Christian contentment, I pray that you would help us to see Christian contentment as something beautiful and precious and valuable and attractive. And I pray that we would leave here wanting to strive to pursue Christian contentment. Help us to value it. Help us to see our need for it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my sermon is Learning the Secret of Christian Contentment. Learning the Secret of Christian Contentment. And one of the goals I have today is I want to lift up Christian contentment before us, and I want us to see Christian contentment as beautiful, as compelling, as radiant, as attractive, I want us to see it as an important need in the Christian life. But the first thing I'll say about Christian contentment before we jump into our passage is that Christian contentment, sadly, is rare. It's a rare thing amongst Christians. A Puritan author named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a famous book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I know some of you are reading that book, I think, right now. He called Christian contentment a rare jewel, a rare jewel of Christian contentment. There's a pastor who wrote a book just last year. He wrote an updated version of that book. His name is Andy Davis, and he wrote a book called The Power of Christian Contentment. And Andy Davis said, most Christians don't learn consistent contentment. Most Christians don't ever learn consistent contentment. So Christian contentment is a rare thing, and most Christians don't learn consistent contentment. Well, if Christian contentment is beautiful and compelling and attractive, why do so few Christians learn consistent Contentment. Well, I think maybe a couple of answers to give to that would be one of the reasons why we don't learn consistent contentment is because we're living in a society that is permeated by a spirit of discontentment. I mean, just, just living in it, swimming in it. We're swimming up against the tide, against the stream of the world. I mean, you, we've been around people probably, it's just they're not content with anything. There's just this spirit of discontentment in our world. That's going to be a challenge for us as we pursue Christian contentment. But not only that, Alistair Begg said that he faced discontentment in his own mind and his own heart on perhaps a daily basis. So we're going to face discontentment in our own mind and our own hearts on a daily basis probably, and then we're swimming against the tide. So these two reasons are why it's going to be an uphill battle. But I, I want to say that it's going to be worth it. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it to pursue Christian contentment. Andy Davis begins his book, The Power of Christian Contentment, with this true story. It's 1990, and it's in Brazil, and there's a Brazilian farmer, 
and he's on his property, and he's gone down to the river on his property, and he's getting water for his fields, and while he's getting water on his property, he sees something out of the corner of his eye, catches his attention in the water, and he heads over to this spot, and he reaches down, and he picks up this stone from the water, and he begins to examine it and wipe it off and look it over. Now, he has no idea that what he has just picked up was a diamond, and it was not any old diamond. It was a large diamond. It was 13.9 carats in its rough form. And not only was it any old diamond, this was an exceedingly rare diamond. This was a red diamond, which apparently red diamonds are the rarest of all diamonds. So he had just picked up an exceedingly rare and large red diamond. He eventually would sell this diamond to a diamond company. This diamond company made multiple trips down to Brazil to pry it loose from him, and I'm sure they paid a handsome fee to get this diamond. And once this diamond company got it, they had all these master cutters got together, and I'm sure they were very excited about this diamond. What are we going to do with this diamond? How are we going to cut it? How are we going to shape it? And they finally decided on the shape, and they went to work cutting on this diamond, and they picked a triangular shape, and they cut it down to this triangular shape, and in its final form, it was 5.11 carats. Originally, it was called the Red Shield. They eventually sold it to another owner. It has changed names since then. They sold it apparently for $8 million. They sold this diamond. It has been on display at the Smithsonian Museum a couple of different times. Hundreds and thousands of people probably have come and seen it and just been marveled at the beauty of this red diamond. Andy Davis says this, this amazing red diamond is exceedingly precious But an immeasurably more precious jewel to the Christian is contentment. An immeasurably more precious jewel to the Christian is contentment. Let me press his illustration just a little bit further. Let's say a couple of years from now, I can't do it today since we're in the COVID deal, but say a couple of years from now, somebody from Central Baptist Church came to us after the service and they said, there is a diamond just like this red shield. It is buried right out here underneath the playground area. It's about 50 feet down. We'll give you this handful of shovels. You can only dig with these shovels, but if you're able to dig with just these shovels, if you're able to dig down 50 feet and you're able to find this diamond, North Avenue Church can have that diamond. Well, very quickly, we would go to work. We would have sign-up sheets and teams shifts, sign-up sheets for shifts to go, and people would immediately begin after church starting to dig with the shovels. They'd be digging down. We have sign-up sheets for people to bring food. We have sign-up sheets for people to bring refreshments and water. We'd buy lights out there. We'd be working around the clock, 24 hours a day. And I think we would dig down there, and I think we would eventually get that diamond. Honestly, I think I'd put Alan McCannon in charge of the whole thing. We'd have the diamond within a week. But the point of of this illustration is that we would put all kinds of energy and effort, and we would strive and, and sweat and toil to dig down to get this diamond. But how much more energy and effort should we put into pursuing Christian contentment. So much more energy and effort we should put into pursuing Christian contentment because Christian contentment is immeasurably more valuable than the rarest diamond in the world. Let's jump into our text. The beginning of verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So let me just set the stage here again with this letter. We're jumping a little bit ahead from where we were last time. So let me just set the stage, remind you, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He is chained to a guard, a group of guards, and he's sharing the gospel with these guards, and he's writing to this Philippian church that he loves, that he has planted this church. And in order for us to understand this portion of Philippians properly, we need to know something that we haven't covered yet, and is this. Epaphroditus has come from the Philippian church, and he has brought gifts to the Apostle Paul. And we know from chapter 2 that Epaphroditus risked his life 
to bring these gifts to the Apostle Paul. So let me set the scene. Paul, under house arrest, he is chained to a guard. You have Epaphroditus very likely sitting in front of him, and you have these gifts. Let's say it's a, it's a bag of silver coins that is sitting between Paul and Epaphroditus. Look at verse 18 of chapter 4. We see a little bit more about this. Verse 18 says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Epaphroditus risked his life to bring these gifts. Now look back at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Paul is exuberant with joy because the Philippians have sent these gifts to the Apostle Paul. He is spontaneously, exuberantly thankful and joyful that the Philippian church have sent these gifts to him. But Paul can't just stop in this one sentence. He's got to keep going because he realizes that first sentence could be misunderstood. You notice how he says, beginning of verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He realizes that could be misunderstood. Some people may think, wait a minute, Paul, so we were concerned for you, we stopped being concerned for you, and now we're concerned for you? So he wants to clear that up. Middle of verse 10, now he clears this up. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So they've always been concerned for him. They just haven't been able to send him gifts for a long time. And finally, after probably years of time, they had this opportunity. Epaphroditus is going to go. And they said, this is the perfect opportunity. Let's send gifts with Epaphroditus. They send these gifts with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus goes and brings these gifts to Paul. And Paul is joyful. But Paul can't stop right there. Being the teacher of the gospel that he is, he realizes he can use this as a teaching tool for the Philippian church. So he keeps going. Verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is fantastic, what Paul is doing right here. You notice what he's doing. What Paul is saying is, yes, he's rejoicing that they have sent these gifts, but what Paul is saying is his contentment is not tied to that money in any way. It is not tied to it at all. Paul is saying that he was content when it was just him and the guards before Epaphroditus showed up. He was content when Epaphroditus came. He was content with the money there. He will be content when Epaphroditus leaves. He will be content when that money is spent and gone. Yes, he's appreciative for this money. He knows it's going to meet his physical needs, but his contentment is not at all tied to that money. And notice how he says in the middle of verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I thank God that the Apostle Paul said, for I have learned. Why is Lloyd-Jones thanking God that Paul says, for I have learned? Why is he so happy about that? Well, Lloyd-Jones is thanking God because that means that the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, he didn't immediately arrive at contentment. This was something that the Apostle Paul realized he needed to grow in. He needed to make progress in this area. And what Paul is saying that over time, probably years of time, he was able to learn the secret of contentment. He was able to learn contentment. So it should be hugely encouraging to us. If we are struggling with being content consistently, well, welcome to the club. Join the club. The Apostle Paul was there at one time. And the encouraging thing is that we, by the grace of God, can learn the secret of contentment. It should be hugely encouraging. I was talking to Jerry Edgar on the phone this morning, and he said, maybe we're just at two percentage points of, of contentment. Maybe we're just two percent. But he said, we can, by the grace of God, we can make it to three percent. And then we can make it to four and five and six, and we can make progress all the way up to 100% by the grace of God. We can learn to be content. That should be hugely encouraging to us. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, 
and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You have this powerful verse here where you have Paul giving three sort of abounding words, three sort of broad, low words, and you've got in any and every circumstance thrown in the middle of all of this. Look, look at it one more time. I know how to be brought low. Here's the low word. I know how to abound. There's the abounding word. Then in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, here's the abounding, facing plenty. Here's brought low, hunger, abundance, and need. What is Paul saying in verse 12? Paul's saying that his contentment is not based on his circumstances. His contentment is independent of his circumstances. Paul, I think, realized that very right away that he Circumstances are always changing. They're always going up and down. Sometimes we're abounding. Sometimes we're brought low. Sometimes we're in need. Sometimes we're hungry. Sometimes we have plenty. So how could our contentment be tied to our circumstances? If it is, we're never going to have consistent contentment. So contentment is not tied to our circumstances. And certainly the Apostle Paul... Uh, exemplified this in his life. You think about when this church was planted. Mark mentioned this in his first sermon on Philippians. You think of Acts chapter 16, where when Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and there's that demon-possessed girl, and Paul casts out the demon-possessed girl, and the owners of this girl are angry because they can no longer make money, and they stir up the crowds against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates get involved, and they strip Paul and Silas of their clothes, and they're beaten with rods, and they're cast into the prison. Well, certainly, if Paul and Silas' contentment were based on abounding circumstances, their contentment would have been gone in the prison. But in the prison at midnight, what does the text say? They're praying and singing hymns to God for the joy of their salvation because their contentment is not tied to their circumstances, independent of circumstances. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't know if there's been a more misapplied verse in the entire Bible than Philippians 4, 13. Maybe you've seen posters with a guy climbing a rock face, a very difficult rock face, and it's got Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me? Or maybe you've seen a, a t-shirt with a kid hitting a home run. I can do all things through Christ. Well, one pastor said, what about the kid who strikes out every time? Can he do all things through Christ? Who strengthens him? Or some people think, you know, I can make an A on this test. I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me? And Alistair Begg said, and then you go and take the test and you fail. And actually, you can do all things. You can fail through Christ who strengthens you. You can be brought low through Christ who strengthens you. So what does this actually mean? Well, let me read verses 12 and 13 back to back so we can see it in context. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One commentator said the contextual meaning of all refers to the previous claim to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul is saying that he can live with contentment in any and every circumstance through Christ who strengthens him. That's what he's saying in verse 13. This is incredible. So Paul can be content through Christ when he is brought low. He can be content through Christ when he's abounding. He can be content through Christ in any and every circumstance. That's what Paul is getting at in verses 12 and 13. So let me give you four quotes from four different people about contentment, about the importance of contentment. Four quotes. Number one, Christian contentment is something that we fight for. Number two, Christian contentment is an objective to be cultivated by all believers who want to grow in Christ. Number three, we should resolve to learn the secret of contentment. 
Number four, let this become our ambition. Let us strain every nerve and do everything we can to get into this blessed state of Christian contentment. Are they overstating the case? Do we really have to fight for Christian contentment? Is this something we should resolve to learn the secret of Christian contentment? Should this be our ambition? Should we strain every nerve and do everything we can to get into this blessed state? Aren't they overstating the case? I don't think so. I don't think so. And here's why I want to lift up the beauty of Christian contentment for us and see it as compelling and attractive. So my question now is going to be, why should we pursue Christian contentment? And then we're going to talk about how we do it. But I'm going to have five reasons why we should strive after contentment. Number one, we should strive after contentment because we are commanded to be content. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We should pursue godliness. We should pursue contentment because godliness with contentment is great gain. We are commanded to be content. So we should pursue and strive after contentment because we are commanded to be content. Number two, we should strive after contentment because contentment brings God great glory. Contentment brings God great glory, especially when we as God's children go through suffering, when we respond to suffering with a sweet submission and loving trust to our Heavenly Father, that brings God great glory. I think of Habakkuk chapter 3, these famous verses in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Hear this verse. This is, talk, this is being brought low in Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is being brought low. But then listen to what the author says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. When we respond like that, especially in suffering, that will bring God great glory, when we rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. Many of you know Nabil Qureshi, who died of cancer just a few years ago. He, he, it was discovered that he had, I think, advanced stomach cancer, and he was in his early 30s, and he was going to leave behind a wife and a young daughter with his advanced cancer, and he would die and leave behind a wife and a young daughter. And I remember seeing a picture of him before he died singing. He had his hands raised, and he is worshiping God with advanced cancer, and I thought it was beautiful. He is bringing God great glory when he remained content in and through suffering. He was taking joy in the God of his salvation. Number three, we should strive after contentment because discontentment leads to other sins. Discontentment leads to other sins. When we are filled with discontentment, we are going to be prone to complain, we're going to be prone to be irritable. We're going to be prone to be impatient. We're going to be prone to be bitter, as Greg mentioned earlier. We're going to be prone to be unkind and be filled with self-pity and on and on and on. You could list these other sins. So we should pursue and cultivate contentment because discontentment leads to other sins. Just take the sin of complaining for just a second. Mark talked about it last Sunday, the sin of complaining. Jeremiah Burroughs, paraphrasing him, he said, there is more evil in the habit of complaining than we are aware of. More evil in the habit of complaining than we are aware of. And Andy Davis says, 
Do we really have any conception of how many complaints we've uttered in the last year? How many complaints have we made? And I think of the people watching and the people in this room, it's got to be thousands of complaints that we have made within the last year. But if we arrive and learn consistent Christian contentment, I think the sin of complaining will be done. I think this sin will be done away with. This should be a huge motivation for us to pursue contentment because complaining will be done away with. Think about Paul and Silas. Had their contentment dried up in that prison. How quickly discontentment would have settled into their souls and how quickly complaining would have come out of them about how badly they're hurt, about how horrible the the stocks are, whatever. They would have been just complaining, complaining, complaining. And yet, since they had contentment, they're praying and singing hymns to God. So if we cultivate contentment, we will make progress against all these other sins in our life. Andy Davis said, esteem contentment highly and hate complaining passionately. Number four, which ties in with the third one, is contentment will, will be a shield against temptation. Contentment will be a shield against temptation. So if we are filled with contentment, we are going to be hard to tempt. We're going to be hard to tempt. So think about it like this. Think about contentment being a shield against temptation. Think about temptation as flaming arrows being shot at us. These temptations to complain, these temptations to be irritable, these are flaming arrows being shot at us. Well, if we are filled with contentment, we're holding this metal shield, and those arrows are going to hit that shield, and they will not harm us. They will not touch us. They will fall to the ground and go out because we are going to be hard to tempt. But if we are filled with discontentment, It's like we drop that shield down and we've got indwelling sin within us. Think of kindling wood inside of us. And when we're filled with discontentment, it's like taking this kindling wood, dipping it in gasoline, and we hold it out in front of ourselves. And when that flaming arrow comes at us, the temptation to complain is going to hit that kindling wood. It's going to ignite. I mean, just think about something as simple as the air conditioner going out in your home or at work and how quickly discontentment can begin to settle in and it gets hotter, and it gets hotter, and it gets hotter, and the discontentment is rolling. And just think about that flaming arrow to complain comes at you, and how quickly people will begin to complain about the temperature and how uncomfortable it is. It just, it's just like dominoes. But if we're filled with contentment, we will be guarded against temptation. Number five, we should pursue contentment because when we are discontent, we lose sight of the mercies of God. When we are discontent, we lose sight of the mercies of God. I I got this from Thomas Watson. I just uh, was blown away by this one. When we're filled with discontentment, we lose sight of the mercies of God. And I'll just, I came up with a made-up story to try to illustrate this point. Let's say we've got a, a guy, he's a genuine Christian, he's a businessman, he's married with a couple of young kids, and he works hard at his job, and he's been there for several years, and he's certain he's going to get this promotion, a promotion that he feels like he's going to be better at this job in terms of the job duties. He's going to be better. He's going to be better suited for that. He's going to have more money. He's going to be better able to provide for his family. He's certain he's going to get it. And the day comes when he's going to find out if he's gotten this job, and he gets to work, and his boss calls him in, and his boss tells him that, unfortunately, he has not gotten the promotion, but some, one of the other coworkers has been promoted ahead of him. And he heads back to his office, and discontentment begins to cloud over him and begins to settle inside of him as he begins to fixate on this one thing that is causing his discontentment. He's focused in on the fact that he hasn't gotten this job promotion, and this is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's filling his gaze. 
And he's just full on now. He's, he's discontented. You can think about all these other sins he's going to give into during that day. He could be angry at his boss. He could be thinking bad thoughts about his coworker got promoted. All kinds of things that he's better, whatever it is. All kinds of other sins, but he's filled with this discontentment. The, the thing is, he's not going to see the mercies of God. He's going to be blinded to the mercies of God. So he gets in his car, angry, frustrated, discontent, and he begins to drive home, and there's this beautiful sunset on the drive home, but he hardly even lifts his eyes to see the sunset. He goes home, and he opens the door, and his kids run to embrace him, and he hardly pays attention to his children. He, he sees the mess in the living room, and his wife has prepared a wonderful meal, and he hardly pays any attention. He sits down and makes a prayer. His children are laughing, having a great time, and yet his mind is distant, and he misses it all. He doesn't even want to pray and do a devotion with his kids after dinner. He just wants to go away to his office and fume, and he has missed the mercies of God. But rewind the tape and say he remains content when he doesn't get the promotion. And he gets in his car and he drives home and he sees the sunset. And he's blown away. The heavens are telling the glory of God day after day. They pour forth speech and he bursts into prayer. Thank you, Father, for this display of your glory. It's beautiful. He drives home and his kids race to him. And he's amazed that God has given him the privilege to be their parents. And he plays with the toys. He smells the food and he's amazed at the wife God has given to him. And he sits down to eat and he offers a genuine prayer of thanksgiving for the food and he takes part in the conversation. He can't wait to pray with his children and read the Bible with his children, all seeing it all as a privilege. And he sees the mercies of God. So when we're filled with contentment, it's like putting on high-definition goggles or glasses so that we can see the mercies of God. Discontentment will lead to ungratefulness and thanklessness, but contentment will, will, will lead to over, uh, abundant thanksgiving. So now the question is, how are we going to cultivate this type of contentment? How are we going to cultivate this type of of contentment. Well, first, let me, let me define what I mean by contentment. Just so we're on the same page. When I say Christian contentment, I don't mean that we are content with our sinfulness. Not what I'm saying. I don't mean that we are content with our spiritual progress. Not what I'm saying. I hope we're, we're never content with our spiritual progress. I hope we'll be striving after the Lord, pursuing holiness all the way to the end of our life. And we're never content with sin. We're going to hopefully be putting sin to death by the Spirit till our dying days. That's not what I'm talking about. The kind of contentment that I'm talking about is this. Contentment means cheerfully, trustfully submitting to what our Heavenly Father decides to do in everyday life. That's what I mean by contentment. Cheerfully and trustfully submitting to what our Heavenly Father decides to do in everyday life. Well, in order for us to cultivate this type of contentment, what do we need to do? Well, I think foundationally we need biblical truth. If we're going to learn Christian contentment, we need biblical truth. We need to love, cherish biblical truth. One of those truths that we need to love and cherish is found in our passage. So let me just read 11 to 13 again of Philippians 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The first biblical truth that we need in order to learn contentment is is going to be through Christ who strengthens us. That's the only way we're going to learn consistent contentment is through Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from the Lord Jesus and his enabling grace, we will never learn the secret of contentment. We will learn it only through Christ who strengthens us. I love what one pastor said about this. He said, Paul was just a man. He was not a superman. He was a sinful man like we are, but Paul was a man who had boundless confidence in the ability of Jesus Christ to match every situation he faced. I love that. Paul was just a man, but he had boundless confidence in the ability of Jesus Christ to match every situation he faced. I hope that we will have a a boundless confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace to match every situation we face. Foundational truth number two is what Greg already talked about before, is that we need to know and love and cherish the fact that God is sovereign and God is good. I mean, this is absolutely, utterly essential for us to learn consistent contentment. God is sovereign, a verse that Jerry Ediger loves to quote, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. R.C. Sproul said there are no maverick molecules in the entire universe. God is absolutely, utterly, completely sovereign over all, but God is good. He is good and to his people. I think about Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The point, one pastor said, the point of this passage is that God has us covered. We are his children. He loves us. We as believers are his children. We've been adopted into his family. God loves us. He's in charge of our life and has everything under control. One pastor said, contentment begins with a settled confidence in God's sovereign control of all of the events of life that ultimately are going to reach us for our good. God is sovereign. God is good. I think Romans 8, 28, which I think Greg mentioned before as well, one of Jerry's all-time favorite verses, one of Fred's all-time favorite verses, a fantastic verse where Paul says, and we know, I know Jerry loves that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Lots of stories I could use to illustrate this. I'll use one that I just read recently. I just finished this book about two missionaries. They, they wrote this book. Frank and Marie Drown wrote this book called Mission to the Headhunters. And they were faithful missionaries in the jungles of Ecuador for 37 years. They went there in 1945, and they stayed until 1982. And they knew... A couple of the guys who died trying to reach the Warani, they knew Nate Saint, they knew Roger Udarian, and actually this guy Frank Drown led sort of the expedition in to try to find these guys later. But Frank and Marie wrote this book, Mission to the Headhunters, and they were stationed just sort of in the middle of the jungles. Uh, before they, uh, when they first went there in 1945, there, were not even, there was not even an airstrip in their mission field. And for them to get to their mission field, they had to hike six days journey through the jungle just to get to their mission field. I mean, just crazy. No electricity, no running water, uh, no refrigeration. That's where they were, totally isolated. But they were working hard on the language and doing all kinds of things there. And Frank 
wanted to go to a missions conference. Well, in order for him to go to a missions conference, uh, he's got to take a six days journey through the jungle, then take a flight, then fly back and six days through the jungle to, to come back. His wife was pregnant at the time. She stayed back with some other missionaries. So Frank takes off for this conference, comes back, and Frank was a man who I don't think had a lazy bone in his body, just working, working, working. Honestly, he reminded me of my grandfather who was a missionary in Africa. My grandfather, no lazy bones in his body, just worked, just worked, just worked. That was Frank. So Frank gets back from this missions conference, and this is what he, he says. He had to start working, attending to the house. He's working on the airstrip. He's digging drainage ditches. He's harvesting wheat. He's planting gardens. He's working from daybreak to nightfall. But within a week, he was flat on his back with malaria that he had contracted on the trail coming home. And he's taking malaria medicine, but the malaria medicine is having no effects because he keeps uh, throwing it back up. He couldn't keep the malaria medicine down, so his fever is rising higher and higher. It's getting dangerously high. And then his wife realized they had some uh, malaria medicine that she could give him as an injection. She finds this medicine. She gets it all together. They had done some training about this sort of thing before going to the mission field. She gives him this injection, and finally, within 24 hours, the fever slowly began to drop. But here's Frank. Here's a man who wants to get out and work and do these things. Here's what he says. I had to fight hard not to give way to discouragement. Think discontentment. He's on his back. He's in bed. He can't work. He's fighting hard against discontentment, discouragement. But he says this, but I had more time to think, to pray, and to read the Bible than I had had for months. Finally, I realized God was teaching me a lesson. I had been neglecting what was more important than all the hard work I could offer, time spent in fellowship with him, praying and meditating on his word. And then he remembers this message that he had heard before going to the mission field where this guy said, you must build a strong spiritual life maintained by regular and consistent prayer and Bible study habits. Then Frank says, I knew why God had put me on my back and I cried to him for forgiveness and help to do better in the future. God wanted my heart's devotion and my worship and communion with him. That that story moved me multiple times because of the goodness of God in Frank's life. God knows that Frank is drifting away from the things of God. So what does God do? God, in his goodness, reaches down and gives Frank malaria, puts him on his back to draw Frank back to himself. So God is sovereign and God is good. One pastor said, we need to rejoice in the Lord and be quick to see his hand at work for our good. So often in our life, we have sort of a picture of how things are going to go. And so often God has a different plan entirely for us. And when that happens, when God changes our plans, we need to rejoice in the Lord and be quick to see his hand at work for our good. All kinds of stories I could tell on this, but this is my own life about a month ago. My wife is going to have book club, and they're doing it on Zoom, and she's starting about 7.15, and I knew I'm going to put Michael to bed, our son to bed, and around 7.30, and I'm thinking... I've got two hours. I get to read whatever I want for two hours. I can read biography, Christian living. This is going to be fantastic. I mean, I love to read and have a set time to read. Yes, that's my plan. God had a very different plan. God's plan involved me reading for just a few minutes and the rest of the time caring for my son who wouldn't go to bed. Totally different plan. My son crying, yelling my name, going in, holding him, reading with him, praying with him, putting him to bed, going back, yelling my name, going back. I mean, just two hours of this. Well, when that happens, I need to rejoice in the Lord and be quick to see God's hand at work for my good. What what was God doing? Well, God was causing me to pray for my son. I prayed more 
for Michael that night than I had had for a long time. God didn't want me reading that night. He wanted me praying for my son. So we need to rejoice in the Lord and be quick to see his hand at work. For I think of Ian Webster has talked about this. He told me recently with Amelia one time was sick, and uh, apparently she doesn't like to cuddle with her parents as much anymore. But this time when she was sick, she wanted to cuddle. And she wanted just Ian to cuddle. So Ian's awakened. He's not going to get the, the same amount of sleep that he normally gets. But Ian said he got to cuddle with Amelia. He got to sing with her. got to pray with her. And Ian was saying basically he was rejoicing the Lord and being quick to see God's hand at work for his good. The last thing I'd say on this, if we are struggling uh, to believe in the goodness of God, uh, we need to go to Calvary. We need to take a trip to Calvary and look at the Son of God becoming sin for us. I think of John Newton who, who wrote to that woman who was suffering, and she, he said to her, Madam, let's leave your troubles for a while and take a view of his troubles at Golgotha. So we, we go to the cross and we go to a passage like Romans 8.32, another all-time favorite of Jerry Ettinger, which says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Sinclair Ferguson says, The cross is the greatest proof ever given of the love of God for sinners. Since God has given his Son for our salvation, we can be sure he will withhold nothing from us that is for our good. What greater persuasion could God give us of his love? No other is needed. So we go to the cross. We meditate on the cross. I'm reading a book on John Stott right now, and John Stott apparently at the end of his life talking to a young man who wanted to be in the ministry, and John Stott said to him, cling to the cross. Cling to the cross. I thought, that's great wisdom and advice. Now, before I wrap up, let me just say this. If you're not a Christian and you're watching, or you're not a Christian and you're here, I want you to understand that what I've been telling the Christians in the room and the Christians online for the last several minutes, it will not help you at all unless and until you put your faith in Jesus Christ, because apart from him, there is no contentment worth having. So let me end with this story, again, from Frank and Marie Drown's life. Remember, they're faithful missionaries. They're in the jungles of Ecuador, and they're trying to reach unreached people groups. There were multiple unreached groups there. One was the Shu'ara tribe, which is where they went originally, and they're working hard on the language, and they're building relationships, and they're getting the gospel to this tribe. And there was another tribe, the Atchwara tribe, a very violent tribe that was further past the Shu'ara tribe that had never been reached with the gospel. And they were extremely violent, very much like the Warani tribe. Lots of intertribal killings between these tribes. There would be a killing over in this tribe, and then there would be a revenge killing over here, and then a revenge killing over here, and here, just perpetuating all these killings going on. And they're going to wipe themselves out unless the gospel comes in. Frank gets an opportunity to go to this tribe, and he goes with Roger Udair, and he goes with some others, and I, I talked about this at the Hebrews night, and he exhausts himself. He, he speaks the gospel until he has no voice anymore, just telling them the gospel. And over time, over years of time, Frank is trying to reach these tribes, specifically this Atchwara tribe. He's going to them, going to them, going to them, and he meets this man who is a violent chief. This man had killed many men killed many men, extremely violent. But Frank 
walks him through the gospel. He walks him through the, the storyline of the Bible. He talks about creation. He goes way back at the beginning. He started and tried John 3.16, but it didn't work because they didn't really know what was going on. So he's like, wait a minute. Got to start at the beginning. He started at the beginning. Creation. God created the world and everything in it. He talked about Adam and Eve and how they sinned. You know, they grasped for equality with God and then sin entered the world. He talked about how we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we have lived as if we know better than God. We have dishonored him, and God will be just to condemn us forever. And then he gets to creation, fall, redemption. He gets to the gospel. But God has sent his son into the world to to save sinners like us. If we would just turn from our sins and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we could be forgiven and have new life in Christ. Just getting to tell this gospel to people who have never heard it, amazing. And he begins to see people converted. But there's this violent man, this chief, and he asks him, are you ready? To become a Christian, he says no. And he keeps pursuing him. Are you ready to become a Christian? He says no. He says no. He says no. And you're longing that this man would come. At least I was as I read. I wanted this man to come to know Jesus. In a moving part in the book, this man comes to Frank one night and says, I'm ready to bow the knee. If so, moving. And he turns from his sins and he rests in the finished work of Jesus. And I was blown away by the patience of God with this man who killed men. He, he, God sends this faithful missionary in to give him the gospel. He is patient with him and the grace of God to reach down to this violent man and to change him and to bring him to new life. So powerful, so moving. Reminded me of the grace of God in my life of saving me. So if you're not a Christian, I would say, are you ready to bow the knee? If you are, you can turn from sin and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you can be forgiven and have new life in Jesus. And then once you do that, then we can talk about learning the secret of Christian contentment. Now, for the rest of us, I hope we've seen at least a little bit of why Christian contentment is beautiful and compelling and attractive. And why should we pursue this rare jewel? Why should we strive after it? Well, we're commanded to be content. When we remain content, especially in suffering, that will bring God great glory We should cultivate contentment because discontentment leads to other sins. Contentment will be a shield against temptation. When we are discontent, we lose sight of the mercies of God. And let's remember, we can learn the secret of Christian contentment through Christ who strengthens us. We can arrive there by the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. What a wonderful passage. Uh, Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his example. Uh, We're so thankful that he was able to learn the secret of contentment. No matter what circumstances he was facing, he he was able to do it through Christ who strengthened him. So, Father, I I know that uh, this contentment is a huge sin, I'm sure, for all of us. And we're so prone to complain about things so easily. And I just pray that we would see the, the beauty and the value of contentment. Help us to see it as precious, as immeasurably more valuable than the rarest diamond in the world. And I pray that we would leave here pursuing it, striving after it. I pray you'd help us, strengthen us by your grace. Help us to learn the secret of contentment, Father. We want to learn this secret. We want to glorify you uh, through contentment. Once again, be with us now as we sing, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.